Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 48th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast where we bring you the latest in clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. And we're here today on a very special day. Today is Earth Day. Uh, So while we're here in North Carolina talking about energy, there's also lots of energy conversations taking place at the international level as well. So I'm really excited to be hosting this special episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast live. Uh, So we are here live from the 2021 Virtual State Energy Conference. So for our listeners tuning in from around the world, things may sound a little bit different and the regular order of things might switch around a little bit. And for the listeners joining us live, we are excited to have you join us uh, to get an insider look at how we make the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And since we're recording live today, attendees will have the opportunity to be a part of our recording. So as we're interviewing our guests, please feel free to send in your questions via the Q&A. This recording will then be shared out after today's session via our traditional podcast streams and heard by listeners all over the world. So make sure you subscribe to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to hear this episode when it comes out a week from now on April 29th. All right. So for our new friends listening live, this may be the first time you've heard an episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. So let's catch you up on what we're all about. The Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is produced by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, a 501c3 nonprofit focused on clean energy policy and business development right here in the state of North Carolina. The pod was started just about two years ago we've produced more than 50 episodes or almost 50 episodes featuring many of the voices you've heard over the past few days from this conference. Some of the guests so far that we featured in our two-year run have included Leah Stokes, Catherine Hamilton of the Energy Gang podcast, former NCDEQ secretary and now EPA administrator Michael Regan, NBA all-star David West, and we've even gone to space to feature some guests from NASA. Quite the lineup and we're not done. We've got a great lineup to bring you here today. And we've got lots of really, really exciting things coming up in the future as well. To talk about an episode that we recently published, we focused on the important partnership between clean energy and the military, where we featured our great friends over at the North Carolina Military Business Center on episode 47. That episode was just published last week. So if you're interested in checking that out and hearing about how the military has adopted clean energy in the state, I'd encourage you to tune in to that episode. And before we jump into today's episode, I'd be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to also plug NCSEA's upcoming Making Energy Work webinar series. Join hundreds of attendees from across the country to get the latest scoop on trending clean energy topics sweeping the industry. In case you missed them last year, We feature the likes of Amory Lovins, Jigger Shaw, and numerous other clean energy influencers across the field. Our first webinar is coming up on May 19th, where we'll be talking electric, 
electric vehicles that is. It's free to register. So join us at makingenergywork.com. Okay. So again, we are very excited to be here today as the very last session of the 2021 State Energy Conference. We wanted to thank the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center for inviting us here and for putting on another great conference. Hopefully, you've had a chance to learn lots of new things about the industry while also making some new connections. As a quick recap this week, we were joined by over 550 attendees from all across the state, region, and country in more than 30 live and on-demand sessions featuring over 100 speakers. A huge round of applause is deserved for all the partners, sponsors, and staff members at NC State and the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center for making this event a success. I am always amazed, honestly, by, by how large and vibrant the energy ecosystem is here in North Carolina and the diversity of businesses and organizations interested in our industry. I talk to people all the time from outside the state of North Carolina and constantly hear praise for how collaborative and innovative our state is when it comes to conversations around energy. All right, so enough patting ourselves on the back. For today's episode, we're diving in and providing a recap of this week's conference to cover some of the things that you might have missed. We'll be doing that by inviting back some of the speakers from this week and talking with them about what's going on in the energy ecosystem. So we have a number of great speakers lined up for this afternoon's session. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your favorite beverage during this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Clean energy. All right, our first guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast serves as the Sustainability Program Manager for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Mills River, North Carolina, where she works on environmental initiatives aimed at building an enduring and resilient company. Our guest manages greenhouse gas reduction projects on the plant level, ranging from energy generation and efficiency, zero waste, water conservation, and alternative transportation. Along with continuous improvement projects, she is responsible for educating and engaging employees around environmental issues and advocating for projects and groups in alignment with company values within the local Western North Carolina community. Friends of the pod, please welcome Leah Cooper, Sustainability Program Manager with Sierra Nevada Brewing Company to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Leah, welcome. We're so excited to have you on. Hey, I am excited to be here. I love your soundtrack. Thank you so much. And I'm going to have to give a shout out to Ben Stockdale, who helped get this podcast started here at NCSEA. So shout out to Ben if you are listening in. So Leah, we are so, so excited to have you here on the podcast to talk a little bit more about Sierra Nevada and your work over there. So earlier this week, you were featured on the panel titled Decarbonization, Reducing a Facility's Carbon Footprint. So before we dive into the built environment and uh, specifically some of the projects you've implemented at Mills River and the Chico facilities. Could you tell us a little bit more about what sustainability means to Sierra Nevada? Yeah, when we are talking about sustainability at Sierra Nevada, we are really talking about how we can build a resilient business. And that means how can we actively and strategically reduce our risks while also driving innovation in order to thrive for generations and generations to come. 
And we do that by considering the environmental, social, and economic impacts of our business and all of our business decisions. But from a sustainability perspective in my team, when we think about our sustainability strategy, we really have three specific pillars or three specific focus areas that we're looking at. And the first one is climate resilience. So we're looking at ways that we can, again, mitigate our risks as well as adapt to a changing climate. And that's incredibly important for any business, especially one in the food and beverage industry. If we don't have access to water that's abundant and high quality, we don't have a business. So it's imperative for, for us to address those risks. Our second focus area is nature positive, and these are very aspirational terms for us, but what that means for Sierra Nevada is supporting a circular economy, protecting biodiversity, and conserving our natural resources like water and all of the different things that we're using for production at our site. And then our third focus area is people forward. How can we create an equitable and inclusive space for our consumers and our employees? So altogether, that's kind of our, our main focus area when it comes to sustainability at Sierra Nevada over the next 10 to 30 years. So that's a lot. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's important to have water to have beer. Uh, <laughs> so all of these things are very, very important for you and your team to be working on. And it's not something that you're just talking about. You're implementing on a daily basis. So thinking about your facility in Mills River specifically, what sort of energy efficiency and clean energy measures have you already implemented uh, and carried out at that location? That's a really great question. When it comes to operational sustainability, Sierra Nevada is very much a leader in our industry. It's we've been investing in sustainability for a really long time. And we're pretty lucky building our Mills River facility. We were able to take all of these lessons learned from our Chico facility to apply to our new brewery in Mills River. Um, there's a ton of different things that I talked about in my presentation, but the key highlights for our design included on-site energy generation. We have a 600 solar, 600 kilowatt solar array, as well as a 400 kilowatt microturbine capstone system that generates electricity for our site. And then also in a focus on designing in efficiency, which included things like heat recovery loops. And that's really one of our biggest most impactful closed loop systems at our brewery, recovering heat from both our brewing process and our compressed air um, allowed us to reduce the, the load on our boilers. So those were really the two big things that are the most exciting to talk about, but we, we've continued to focus on improvement within our operations throughout the years. Fantastic. And, uh, Having experienced and been to the brewery out there myself, I, I consider it the, the Disneyland for adults of beer. Um, it is fantastic out there. So I'm curious, uh, are there opportunities for uh, people in our audience here today to actually go out and be able to see some of these projects that you're talking about at the brewery? Yes. Yeah, so we have been closed to the public for the past year and several months um, due to the pandemic, unfortunately, but we just announced an opening date of May 12th. So starting May 12th, we'll be inviting folks back on site in our tap room. And while our tours are not open yet, and I can't speak to when those will necessarily be open, you can at least see the site from our tap room. Fantastic. All right. And so in your presentation, you also emphasize the importance of data collection to continually improve your facility. 
so what types of data are you collecting and do you use this data to justify future clean energy projects? Yes, I love data. I think it is an important and crucial part of any sustainability program. We, we look at a ton of different performance indicators from our therms purchased to biogas consumed to energy generated and electricity purchased in different key areas of our facility. Um, but altogether, as a key performance indicator, we are looking at the total energy consumed and used on site per barrel of beer produced. And that really helps us identify areas of opportunity or things that have maybe gone wrong over the months. In addition to looking at our electricity and natural gas that we use, we also regularly look at our carbon footprint. And while we do our inventory once a year, we're able to use that data to prioritize projects as well as to make the case and really have some type of environmental metric for capital projects and different vendor choices that we make. When it comes to clean energy, just to touch on that, you know, we are at max capacity of what we can have on site. We have one megawatt of energy installed on site. And if we wanted to net meter, which is something that we do want to do, we wouldn't be able to add any more electricity generation on site. So we haven't really used our data um, from that perspective, but we're certainly thinking about ways that we can advocate for more choice and more opportunities within North Carolina. And we hope to be able to consider more diverse options in the future. Yeah, and, and talking about that, um, is there anything that you could share with the group here about things that you're considering in terms of on-site projects or advocacy work that, that you all might be interested in getting involved in in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, a big focus area for us now is building a long term greenhouse gas mitigation strategy and part of that strategy is going to be taking a really close look at our biogas generation and thinking about ways to be more efficient with using that waste resource. Um, so we right now we use biogas in our two capstone microturbines to generate electricity, um, but if we're able to divert more of that biogas to our boilers, we can offset our emissions and would potentially have more opportunity for installing on-site energy. So that's that's certainly something that we're looking at. I can't speak to what that will be like in the future or where we'll go, but that's a big focus area of how can we use this biogas more effectively and how can we really strategically invest in reducing our footprint? That's fantastic. And um, you know, I'll mention that NCSEA, also uh, recently put together an infographic showing the breweries across the state of North Carolina that have implemented clean energy projects. And I know Sierra Nevada is, is specifically featured on that infographic because you all have been so innovative in this space. Um, so, you know, if for folks that are here on the, the webinar, if you haven't had a chance to make it out there yet, I would highly recommend doing so. I'll also throw out the opportunity for folks to, to ask Leah a question while we still have her on the pod here. So uh, if you have any questions for Sierra Nevada, and your question cannot be, can I have free beer? Because the answer is probably gonna be no. Um, but uh, please do feel free to send in some questions. And uh, while you're doing that, I will go ahead and ask Leah another one. So uh, just in general, at a high level, do you know how Sierra Nevada stacks up against you know, the brewing industry at large in terms of your carbon footprint? Is that something that you guys measure? That's a great answer. and. Or great question. Uh, for short answer, 
kind of, um, but I would say that the brewing industry is very diverse and it's very difficult to get an apples to apples comparison of a facility's carbon footprint. We have on-site agriculture, we have an on-site tap room, we have an on-site wastewater treatment plant. That's very different than any other brewery. You know, some breweries may have a robust customer experience or front of house program that changes their energy needs. So it's really challenging to understand what the it's challenging to create a benchmark, I guess, against other breweries. And I would also say the Brewers Association has done a really great job creating a benchmarking program and collecting data from breweries. But when it comes to carbon accounting, while scope one and two accounting is very specific and regimented, scope three is essentially the wild, wild west. So it, again, is almost impossible to compare ourselves to any other brewery because while there are other breweries that are also doing value chain greenhouse gas emission inventories, what we're accounting for is totally different. We might account for hops, but another brewery may choose not to account for that material because it's such a small amount of their footprint. So we don't find that very valuable as a company, but instead focus on ways to benchmark our data against ourselves to see how we can really improve. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you definitely have your, your work cut out for you. I know, you know, creating a, a greenhouse gas inventory and, and really measuring that from, you know, all the different scopes is, is not an easy process to do. And uh, I had a chance to look through some of the slides that you presented earlier this week. And it's incredible the amount of data collection that you all are doing over there. Um, and I, I think really shows leadership in the space. Um, in the commercial and industrial space. And I know that's one of the reasons why you all were featured this week at the State Energy Conference. And we're so glad to have Sierra Nevada here in our backyard in North Carolina and being such a good steward of the clean energy and energy ecosystem. So again, I just wanted to thank you so much, Leah, for joining us on today's podcast and also for being a member of NCSEA. It was great talking to you and I know we will be in touch again soon. Thank you so much, Leah. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Now we have our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Clean energy. All right. Our next guest serves as sustainability director for Self-Help Credit Union and Ventures Fund, collaborating and advocating to reduce footprint and increase mission impact through financial products, operations, and buildings portfolio of this national community development finance institution. She led adoption of greenhouse gas, greenhouse gas analysis, advises clean energy finance, energy efficiency investments, and operational improvements, all with the lens of social equity. Our guest previously directed research for the residential energy efficiency and indoor air quality program at Advanced Energy and advised clients in industrial pollution prevention at RTI International. Squeaky clean listeners, please welcome Melissa Malkin-Beber, Sustainability Director for Self-Help Credit Union to the pod. Melissa, welcome. Matt, how great to be here. We are so excited to have you on the pod. I know we've been talking about it for quite some time and we couldn't have picked a better venue to feature you than as the last session here at the State Energy Conference live in front of all of the attendees. So I'm so excited. Uh, so to start us off, 
why does a financial institution like Self-Help Credit Union care about clean energy and sustainability? And how are you involved in this space through your role? Well, like any organization, the reason we care is because our staff care. And over a decade ago, a number of staff who had different jobs in the organization came together to form a volunteer green team. And they organized the things that were within reach, recycling, paper smackdowns, that kind of thing. And over the years, we've become much more sophisticated, much more systematic, and much more strategic. And we've been able to not just connect the dots on the business case, but also connect the dots with our mission. So as a nonprofit lender, our goal is to create opportunity and ownership for people who are typically left out of those of access to capital. So low wealth communities, people of color, women, rural residents. And we've been able to see over the years how those that connects with pollution in low wealth communities. And it connects with the ability of a community to protect itself from the risks of climate change and I think most interesting here for this conference, we're interested in helping those communities that we serve tap into the economic opportunities that are coming with decarbonization and with the clean energy transition. Great. And here specifically at the conference, you moderated a panel earlier this week called Developing the Future of North Carolina's Clean Energy Industry and Workforce, um, which was on demand. So if you have not had a chance yet to check out that panel, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, in the live or in the virtual conference website. Um, so could you provide us some highlights from that panel, Melissa? Yeah, I'd be happy to. But first, I need to just say how cool it is that this conference happened at all. And seriously, kudos to the organizers, because the conference is a landmark in the year normally. And somehow they made it possible for the attendees to still learn a lot, even though we're not gathered together in the McKimmon Center, eating ham biscuits and shaking each other's hands. I mean, really wonderful. So it was, and it was, and I'll ex also extend kudos for including this workforce angle, both our panel and the diversity, equity, and inclusion panel for the wind workforce. What we uh, recap and I, of, um, of what we talked about. We had three terrific panelists and we touched on three interesting angles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So um, Robin Hamilton from Self-Help talked about the business case. What is it that has a business even take on a supply chain target of doing more purchasing with, from uh, minority or women-owned businesses in their supply chain. And a lot of times it turns out that that's because their stakeholders are expecting to see their communities reflected in the supply chain of the um, businesses that are operating there. And then we talked with Allison Carr who pointed out a really important nuance, which is that it's not just the hard hat jobs. When we're talking about diversifying the clean energy workforce, there's obviously the hard hat jobs, but there's also the back office jobs. There's accounting and law and human resources. And so all of those pieces can be in play when we're talking about adding diversity to the workforce to the benefit of this industry. And then finally, Emily talked about something that really resonated for me at Schneider Electric. She talked about how 
Schneider's goal in creating a diversity and equity inclusion programming um, across lots of different pieces of the organization was to create a space where um, their teammates could come to work, feel safe, feel like it was a good place to be, bring their whole selves to work, as they say, and be able to do their best work because they didn't have half of their mind occupied by friction. And that really sounded like such a, um, like that resonated for me. That felt like a place that I would want to be to bring my whole self to work that way. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I thought all of the speakers from your panel were absolutely fantastic earlier this week. Um, and I will, you know, take any opportunity that I can to also plug the podcast. We did a, a really wonderful podcast just at the beginning of this year, featuring our friends over at the Center for Energy Education, focused on uh, workforce diversity as well, um, working on, you know, a utility scale solar here in the state of North Carolina. So if you haven't had a chance yet to check out that podcast episode, I'd encourage you to do so. And then, of course, you know, one of the things that we miss most about being in person with this conference is the food. Every year, I, I, I tell you what, one of my favorite parts of the State Energy Conference is the food. So shout out to the team at NC State and the Clean Tech Center for making that happen. Um, all right. So, so Melissa, thinking about the, the finance field, your team at Self-Help Credit Union recently published a report highlighting a number of policy and regulatory recommendations geared towards low and moderate income communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those recommendations and how they could spur a more diverse clean energy economy? Yeah, absolutely. We focused in on our role as a lender, so the, um, got down into the weeds of financial regulation. But I wanted to highlight two things that um, might be interesting to folks at this conference. Uh, one of them was the need for transparency in utility data and the, the way that that fits into our view as a lender offering financing is if you can imagine our mortgage business, we'd really like for our borrowers to understand the, the full cost of ownership of that house they're about to buy, whether it's an energy hog or a super sleek energy star certified or a house that's been weatherized. And as it stands right now, we've got borrowers across the country and it varies um, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, whether or not they can get their hands on that data. It's not clear, it's hard to get, and there's not um, an easy way to benchmark that. So as a lender, just from a pure financial perspective, we really believe that a national effort to make energy data transparent and utility data transparent would benefit the financial system. And of course, the folks that we serve and for folks who are um, working families, then that question of the energy burden that they're carrying in their utility bills becomes increasingly important. It really, really um, makes a, a difference paycheck to paycheck. The, and we can also say as building owners how important energy transparency is in trying to make good investments about our buildings. So we made a strong recommendation to increase that nationally and a second piece that I wanted to highlight for this audience is a focus on tariffed on-bill financing of energy improvements, a topic I know near and dear to a lot of our hearts. We like that as a financier because we see that there are places in this, there are gaps in the system where a low-income family simply can't take out a loan 
It doesn't make economic sense for them to take out a loan, but a utility can make an investment in their building as a piece of infrastructure, as a piece of grid stability, put increase the tariff on that meter and make that investment profitable for them, make it affordable for the folks who live there. And we really like the next horizon in that, which is to make it available to school systems for electrifying school buses. So we, we encouraged um, folks to look at both of those in our audience. We have some incredibly you know, innovative utilities here in, in North Carolina um, that have really started leading the charge on you know, tariffed on-bill programs. Um, and you know, there, are, there are some programs coming up in the near future as well that we're really excited about. So if you haven't had a chance yet to, to dive into the world of, of tariffed on-bill, uh, I'd encourage you to go down that rabbit hole. It's, it's really, really great and um, something that's, that's starting to gain a lot of traction across the country. So Melissa, Absolutely. thanks for pointing that out. Um, and then, you know, last thing I, I thought I would ask is it's based on some of the conversations that you, you had on the panel here um, this week, I'm curious to hear about some of the overarching benefits of diversity in the clean energy workforce and the communities that benefit from the projects deployed. Sure. Well, have you heard the phrase, um, the phrase diversity dividend? So uh, a Harvard Business Review article recently um, used this phrase. Study after study show that diverse teams make decisions that are more beneficial economically. They make better decisions. They make better investments. A Citigroup study last year documented the price of racial discrimination on the flip side of that it cost the US economy since, let me get my numbers right, since the year 2000, $19.5 trillion was the price of racial discrimination to the US economy. So there's a really powerful business case to be made for diversity and equity and inclusion and really making big changes in how we come to work and how we bring folks to work. But I think more, more at a gut level, the if you think back on everything we learned over the last few days, all of the challenges, all of the solutions, all of the cool things that we're gonna to get to do as a clean energy industry, that takes talent. It's gonna take a lot of talent. It's gonna take a lot of brain power. And so we simply, we cannot afford to be leaving talent on the sidelines. We need everybody to get to work and we don't have time to lose. That's right. and. You know, the clean energy industry is one of the fastest growing industries across the country, and we need as much help as we can to continue to build it out as we go along. I mean, in the, the clean jobs report that NCSEA um, partnered with E2 on and published last year, in North Carolina in 2019, there were over 112,000 people employed in clean energy, and that number is going to continue to grow. So we want to make sure that we have a diverse and well-represented community that's benefiting from the industry as as it continues to grow across North Carolina. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, Melissa. So Melissa, again, we are, are so thankful to, to have you as a partner of NCSEAs and supporting the work that we do here and being such a great steward of the clean energy industry. Uh, so I just wanted to say thank you for, for joining us on this live version of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, it was so fun. And we are proud to be members of NCIA, have been for years, and love the work you do. Thanks so much, Melissa. And I'm sure we'll feature you on a podcast episode again soon.
All right, up next. Our next guest began lobbying in 2006 and has built Alex Miller Government Affairs into a leading lobbying and public relations firm ranked among the 10 most powerful lobbyists in North Carolina. Prior to founding the firm, he served as an infantry squad leader in the United States Army and a direct practice social worker. In addition to the firm's lobbying work, our guest has managed state legislative campaigns, run independent expenditure political efforts, and advise statewide and national campaign. He holds a bachelor's in social work from Pacific Lutheran University and master's with a focus in public policy from the School of Social Work at UNC Chapel Hill. Friends of the pod, please welcome Alex Miller, founder and principal of Alex Miller Government Affairs. Alex, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. And uh, on this beautiful Earth Day to be talking about important issues. Appreciate the invite. Absolutely. We are so happy to have you here. All right. So to kick things off, uh, at the beginning of this week uh, for the State Energy Conference, one of the first speakers, keynote speakers that we heard from was Governor Roy Cooper indicating his support for the clean energy industry. And uh, in his speech, he had mentioned uh, that North Carolina is working hard to recruit new clean energy businesses to our state and grow the ones that we already have here. So I'm curious, from your perspective, what is the best way for North Carolina policymakers to do just that, which Governor Cooper indicated? Well, that's a great question. And Governor Cooper has been a longtime steadfast supporter of clean energy. We so appreciate his leadership on these issues uh, from his executive order uh, 80 to his support of the industry uh, during his time um, as governor and in his previous work as attorney general and state senator. You know, one of the things that North Carolina policymakers can do, the most important thing I think they can do to help support the homegrown clean energy industry that we have in this state is just to continue to do what they've been doing up to this point. And what I mean by that is they have established policies that created market opportunities. But bringing the opportunity for companies to innovate, to establish businesses, to hire people, to compete with each other, and to grow an industry that we did not have in this state uh, before Senate Bill 3 was passed in 2007, has led to this explosion of clean energy jobs, clean energy uh, tax dollars going into county coffers, and a proliferation of clean energy development projects all across the state. You know, we have some counties where clean energy development projects are some of the biggest county taxpayers uh, that they have. Um, and certainly we all benefit from the clean, reliable, low cost energy that those projects provide. Without the access to the market that was created by Senate Bill 3 in 2007, that industry would not have happened. It also would not have happened without the entrepreneurship uh, of those founders of these companies. You know, not every clean energy company that, that was started in the wake of, of Senate Bill 3 uh, has made it, quite frankly. There are folks who built these companies through competition, innovation, um, putting themselves, their blood, sweat, and tears, their life savings into these companies and created an industry that didn't exist before. And now that industry provides billions of dollars of economic impact 
tens of thousands of jobs across the state, both in those companies and then the, the ancillary business companies that, that work with them. And it's a true success story. We hear over and over North, North Carolina is number two for solar. That's no accident, but it would not have happened without that policy framework that provided access to the market and without the entrepreneurial spirit, innovation and investment of those business leaders who created the industry. So in 2017, we had another piece of landmark clean energy legislation, House Bill 589, which took it a step further and transitioned our renewable energy market from a purpose-driven market to a competitive solicitation market, which introduced even more competition into this industry and into the marketplace where you have clean energy companies essentially competing against each other in this competitive solicitation process. And that's been a good thing. That has helped keep costs low, helping us take advantage of the falling prices of renewable energy, solar, batteries, et cetera. And that has benefited ratepayers. It's benefited tax bases, it's benefited the economy, but it's benefited ratepayers. You know, the analogy that I, I like to think of is you know, um, somebody is right now looking to buy a home or build a home, they have the option to get an adjustable rate mortgage or a fixed rate mortgage and rates are historically low right now. So people are choosing that fixed rate mortgage because why would you not? Why would you subject yourself to the volatility of the market when we expect that rates are gonna do nothing but go up in the coming years and decades? It's the same thing with energy. We can lock in low cost, clean energy for decades to come through these power purchase agreements. Through this competition, all of those projects are bringing energy to the grid at below the avoided cost. So it costs less for North Carolinians to take advantage of that energy than for any other energy source right now. And it's certainly less expensive than some of the most expensive coal uh, in the country that we're burning in North Carolina right now. And with some of the announcements that we've seen coming out of federal government just today with President Biden's announcements, we expect that the cost of continuing to use fossil fuels is only gonna go up. So we have the option to lock in these low cost, clean energy development projects, providing clean energy uh, to the grid and all the other benefits that come along with that. So why would we not do that? The best thing to come around to, to answer your question, the best thing that policymakers can do is to continue to provide access to the market as they have since 2007. Let companies compete, let um, entrepreneurs innovate and everybody wins. The clean energy economy wins, the ratepayers win, the planet wins, and certainly the economy of North Carolina wins as well. We have seen other states try to replicate our success. They want to catch North Carolina. They want to surpass North Carolina. Virginia passed major clean energy legislation that's going to result in 24 gigs of renewable energy development in that state. South Carolina passed major clean energy legislation, and they passed legislation that's going to result in a, a real thorough examination of their energy market and the potential benefits of moving to a wholesale market. You know, we have so much overlap between our energy systems in North Carolina and South Carolina that South Carolina is going to be making some decisions uh, and, and making some moves that are going to affect us. We certainly want to be a part of that conversation, that discussion. We want to make sure that we're continuing to lead and not be left behind as the, uh, these other states who have been so jealous of our success are looking to take our place as, you know, number two in the country, but certainly number one in the Southeast. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll echo uh, what you had mentioned about uh, driving tax revenue, uh, especially to rural parts of the state. Uh, North Carolina, or NCSEA publishes an increased tax revenue uh, study where we've gone through um, a number of the counties throughout North Carolina 
and shown how much their tax revenues have increased uh, from clean energy projects developed there. So there's a real tangible benefit to clean energy in uh, both rural and urban counties all throughout the state of North Carolina. Um, so, you know, continuing that innovation, as you mentioned, so that we can continue to see that additional tax revenue driven to counties all throughout the state that really helps to support, you know, municipal services, the building of roads, schools, um, things that really give back to the community, uh, and also employing people within those communities as well to maintain uh, and build those projects. So I couldn't agree more. Uh, so, you know, Alex, this morning, you were on a panel that was titled, uh, what's going on at the legislator, legislature moderated by our friend Betsy McCorkle at Kairos Government Affairs. Uh, since that was the name of the plenary session, uh, we have to ask, what is going on at the legislature? Are there certain bills or pieces of legislation that you're tracking that would be of interest to our attendees here today? Sure. So uh, we're definitely tracking every bill that's uh, related to energy that's filed at the General Assembly. There, there are a couple in particular that um, we're closely tracking and, and supportive of. Um, and I should say, I represent not only some clean energy uh, developers, I also represent the Carolina's Clean Energy Business Association, the trade association for those clean energy groups, or excuse me, those clean energy businesses. And we are definitely interested in House Bill 611, which was filed this week and it would have North Carolina join South Carolina in a process of studying the benefits of moving to a wholesale market. We have obviously in Eastern North Carolina, a portion of our state is in PJM, it's already in an RTO, and we see um, the benefits for, for ratepayers. Uh, studies that continue to come out demonstrate the kinds of savings that North Carolina ratepayers could realize if we move to a uh, competitive market, a wholesale uh, market that would allow the kind of competition that we're talking about that's currently going on between clean energy companies, introduce that more fully into uh, the energy system in North Carolina. And as South Carolina is staffing up and appointing the study committee uh, based on the legislation that they've passed, North Carolina should be doing the same. And so that's what House Bill 611 would do. It would have North Carolina study those issues as well. Uh, the potential benefits and any potential drawbacks. You know, as we talk about this, we say we currently have a government um, regulated monopoly utility. The, the bit of market access um, that the clean energy industry has been able to get through those uh, policy changes that we talked about earlier. We've seen what innovation can do. We've seen what entrepreneurship can do to unleash all of the benefits of clean energy economy you know, what would happen if there was that market opportunity more broadly? You know, we'd like to find out. We'd like to see a study conducted to demonstrate that. Are there potential drawbacks or the potential pitfalls? We don't know. So it's important, you know, we've got folks who support that bill. We've got folks who um, oppose that bill. Everyone's talking as if they know for sure what would happen if we move to an RTO or some other kind of market. The reality is we really need an independent, objective, third-party study of that issue to lay the policy uh, options out for policymakers. So the bill would not actually have North Carolina join an RTO or form one. It would just have the state study the options and then present those options and all the evidence that goes with them to policymakers in the next session so they could decide what's best for the state. Is staying with the current model what's best? Is moving to a different kind of market what's best? These are the questions that we need to have answered and we need to have a serious conversation uh, about this without all the hyperbole and, and fear tactics that we see, unfortunately, 
when issues like this come up. Great. Yeah. And, you know, some of these conversations were, were teed up as well uh, in the, the most recent A1 and B1 stakeholder reports that came out of the North Carolina Department of, Inqual Department of Environmental Quality's Clean Energy Plan. Uh, so those uh, processes just wrapped up at the end of last year and uh, earlier this spring, uh, highlighting some recommendations in terms of carbon policy and, and market reform. Um, so, you know, some of those those conversations have gotten started there, and it sounds like are carrying into the legislature this year. So it'll be really interesting to track and see uh, how those continue to move through. And then also it'd be interesting to track to see what happens in South Carolina as well. Alex, I wanted to thank you again for joining us as a guest here on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. We're super excited uh, to have you on and tell us about, you know, what we can expect moving forward in the North Carolina energy market. It sounds like there's lots of exciting things coming up and uh, we'll have to stay tuned and maybe we'll have a, uh, a follow-up podcast where we talk about what's happened at the end of the legislature uh, coming up uh, later this year. So Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Matt, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and happy to, to come back and, and talk more as things develop. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. On to our next guest. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our final guest on the pod serves as executive director of the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center in the College of Engineering at NC State University and has over 25 years of experience in the clean energy field. Our guest directs the strategic vision of the center and its programs, including activities in renewable energy and clean power, energy efficiency and green buildings and clean transportation. Our guest also currently serves on the board of directors of my organization, the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, the advisory board of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute in Washington, DC, and the Duke Energy State President's Advisory Council. Previously, our guest was the director for government relations and grid-tied markets at Xantrex Technology, executive director at the Maryland, DC, Virginia Solar Energy Industries Association and Director of State Programs and Policy Analysis at the National SIA. Squeaky clean listeners, please welcome Steve Calland, Executive Director of the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center to the pod. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be at the end of a very long week, but a really great week. Had a lot of good content this week. I learned a lot. We are super excited to have you on here and shout out to uh, you and Shannon over at the Queen Tech Center and the rest of the team over there and at McKimmon and NC State for making this uh, year's virtual uh, conference quite a success. I know that was a, a big transition to move it virtual uh, to say the least, but I think you guys have done a great job and I've heard many wonderful things from a lot of the attendees here this year. So uh, you all deserve a pat on your back uh, for all the hard work that you all have done for this conference. Well, I got to say, I mean, I have the easiest job of the bunch, uh, but, you know, Shannon and Amira and Allison Carr and all of the folks on, on the team, and I have to throw some of that right back to you and the work that NCSEA did, uh, you know, as one of our track managers for the renewable energy track, you had several folks that participated in panels as well. 
Um, you know, we also had, you know, a lot of work that was done by folks over at the Research Triangle Clean Tech Cluster, E4 Carolinas, and then just, you know, some industry professionals that have been involved with the conference over the years. Um, you know, uh, Renee Hutchinson at Wildens and uh, um, over at Brady, or excuse me, at Siemens Energy. Uh, names are now escaping me. I can't come up with everything at this far uh, along the line today, but just a whole lot of folks that, you know, make this conference possible and we just couldn't do it without them. Uh, and so really do appreciate the efforts of everybody. It is a gargantuan task. You know, even national conferences, uh, you know, don't have six tracks with, you know, multiple sessions over, you know, three or four days. Uh, so to do it and to do it all virtual has been, um, let's call it fun. <laughs> that's that's one way to put it uh, yeah that was one way to put it i i will say um melissa if you're out there listening uh i i also look forward to ham biscuits next year uh when we go back to in person <laughs> and and i'll give a shout out to jordan jones and daniel brookshire on the ncsea team for helping to organize the renewables track this year all right so steve Based on your participation over the past few days, what are some of the overarching themes we saw at this year's conference that you want to share with the folks here? Well, you know, it was interesting. There were, there were a lot of different themes and it's hard to kind of pick, but if I had to kind of, you know, work it uphill to some of the biggest pieces of the puzzle that I thought came up over and over again, number one was, you know, the speed of change. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of us a year ago would have guessed that we were all kind of sitting uh, in suspended animation for a year uh, because of COVID and all of the things that were going on because of COVID. And I think what we're finding is that, yeah, there was a little bit of a slowdown initially, but things kind of picked right back up once we all kind of figured out how to use Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and, you know, the 35 other uh, apps that are now on my phone and my computer to do these virtual things. And uh, so COVID really didn't slow us down as an industry as much as I think people would have expected. And now with the change in the federal administration and with EO80 at the state level kind of moving into implementation and away from just kind of studying things, there's a huge amount of state activity, a huge amount of federal activity. Um, you know, if you look at the, the work that's already come out of the federal um, CARES Act, and then you look at what's being proposed in the new uh, Jobs Act, the, the Biden infrastructure plan, uh, if you think back to the ARA uh, shovel ready days, that's going to look like, uh, you know, uh, a, a trickle compared to what is potentially rolling downhill right now uh, as a deluge. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of focus on, on uh, you know, kind of the basics. Uh, another theme that came up repeatedly was resiliency. Uh, I heard it in almost in sessions in almost every track. You know, this word, you know, it wasn't the word that was being bandied about a couple of years ago, but in the last two years, especially as we've seen probably correlates with the uptick in both climate related weather events that people are really starting to attribute to climate now, where rather than saying that weather and climate are, are always different, now we're starting to hear people say more intense weather is a result of climate. Uh, so that, and then also a lot of recognition that you know infrastructure and cyber issues are really starting to lead to a lot more questions about resiliency. Uh, so we heard a lot of that across all of the different tracks of the conference. And so resiliency was definitely, I think, one of the key buzzwords. Um, you know, some other big pieces, local governments and businesses, uh, both throughout the conference, need help. Uh, they're trying to sort through all of this stuff. And what I'm seeing is a lot of them are looking to each other for examples of what to do, but a lot of them need help uh, to figure out what to do and to kind of sort through what works and what doesn't. 
um, you know, fleets, buildings, renewable energy use, all of those things are kind of on the table for local governments, especially, and for, uh, you know, the big Fortune 500 companies that are getting a lot of pressure from their shareholders. Workforce and diversity uh, came up repeatedly. You heard Melissa talk about it here on the podcast, but, you know, we've got a whole lot of work coming and we're going to need a whole lot of new people. And um, if you're like me and you've been coming to renewable energy events for the last close to 30 years at this point, you'd like to see a little bit more diversity in the room when that happens, uh, maybe a lot more diversity in the room when that happens. Uh, and so I, I think that's going to be a major focus of attention. Um, you know, on the conventional energy side, I don't know how many folks got to go to some of those tracks, but I have to say the natural gas session was fascinating. Uh, they did a little talking about how does natural gas look to fit into a, a zero carbon or a net carbon neutral world. And, you know, whether you're talking about trying to incorporate renewable natural gas or hydrogen or infrastructure issues, or even some of these offshore oil guys trying to figure out how to get involved in the offshore wind discussion, um, it was an interesting discussion, I have to say. Um, and transmission issues on the grid side. You know, I think that we're going to see between offshore wind and you know, the need to be able to move more solar energy to more places, uh, transmission came up in, in plenaries and in sessions across the conference as something to focus on. I guess the last big trend I'd, I'd focus on was just collaboration. You know, I mean, North Carolina has always had a little bit of a reputation as being a place where we fight, but we do eventually come together and make something happen. Uh, you heard people talk about clean smokestacks and Senate Bill 3 and House Bill 589. You know, I think that, you know, a lot of these issues are becoming a lot less partisan. Um, you know, there's a lot less of a disagreement between, you know, the utility sector and the end user business sector. I think everybody's kind of in agreement as to where we need to go. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to still argue about in terms of how fast we go there and how we go there. But uh, it does seem that we're all rowing in the same direction, finally. And that uh, is probably good news, not just for the industries that we all work with, but for the planet as well. So I'm, I have to say collaboration was the, the, the other watchword. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, some of those trends that you've talked been you talked about, uh, we've seen right in lots of conversations that have taken place over the past year. Uh, you mentioned offshore wind. We just had the uh, offshore wind supply chain study recently published here in North Carolina that I know that uh, the Clean Tech Center was very involved in, um, and transmission has come up uh, more times than I could count. So uh, interesting to hear that those were conversations that came up throughout the week, but not surprising. Um, so thinking about some of those conversations here and, and those themes that we just talked about, how do those translate into the real world North Carolina energy market? So what's happening on the ground that we can expect to see moving forward between now and the next state energy conference? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Alex touched on some of the new policies, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I was, uh, we were hoping to hear a little bit more about what's going on on the policy front, but I think everybody's still talking about it uh, right now. And so there's a limited amount that can be said publicly, I think, but there is a lot of policy conversation going on in North Carolina around energy issues. And you saw some of that also in the executive order 80 status panel. I think that, uh, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, a lot of new uh, opportunity uh, created as we start to sort out rules uh, of the road through the policy uh, framework uh, to allow some of these technologies to have better access to markets, to figure out how to better incorporate them into business models, to let folks, you know, uh, you know benefit from that in ways that the current regulatory structure might not. Uh, so I think policy is, you know, is always changing in energy. Uh, we probably are the most regulated thing on the planet as a, as a collective family. And so uh, that's nothing new, but 
uh, I think the pace of change in policy is starting to pick up. Um, you know, a, a second thing, I think that uh, we are going to see a lot of new entrants here in North Carolina, a lot of new market players, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, companies that want to provide these types of services. We're really starting to see uh, a blooming growth, for example, in the residential solar market after years of having, you know, rooftop solar kind of lag behind commercial solar. Uh, we're seeing a lot more activity uh, in, in residential solar. Uh, the storage conversation is growing. Uh, and that's meaning that a lot of businesses that, you know, you had Sierra Nevada on just a minute ago. I mean, this is not an energy company, and yet here they are a featured speaker at a uh, at a, an energy conference. I think you're going to see a lot more of that, of, of major companies in the finance field, um, major companies in the manufacturing sector that are all trying to figure out how to digest this uh, energy transformation that's taking place, the new energy revolution, as I called it this morning. And then I think, you know, as with anything in life, we're going to have some new concerns to deal with. Uh, you know, we've had some issues that we've been navigating, you know, with regard to uh, large scale solar, uh, trying to work through with counties to help them sort out what kinds of issues they may face. And we had some we had a great panel uh, here at the conference talking about pollinator habitats at solar farms and, you know, other things that can be done to make solar farms a uh, farm friendly or at least a community friendly piece of, uh, of your neighborhood. Uh, there is you know, a, a panel where we talked about selecting your contractors because we have seen some issues with, you know, contractors that, you know, maybe don't have as strong a presence in North Carolina or that are new entrants to the market that perhaps don't follow the business practices that would be ideal uh, in order to keep the reputation of the industry as a whole centered. And I'll plug right now, NCSEA has a great uh, code of conduct that you have for your members in the uh, residential solar space uh, that, uh, you know, if you're out looking to put solar on your own home, it's one of the reasons you want to go with NCSEA member companies is that they have signed that code of conduct and you, you know you're going to have folks that are working in a good ethical way um, in terms of their business practices. So, you know, a lot to go on, uh, but uh, it's going to keep us busy uh, and uh, that's probably a good thing. Job security for, for both of us. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you know, Steve highlighted a number of, of great panels from throughout the week. You can go back and, and listen to a lot of those in case you missed them. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll also echo what you had mentioned about just the growth that we've seen in the field. Um, working as the, the membership coordinator here at NCSEA, I've had, you know, an unprecedented amount of companies from outside of the state recognizing the opportunities here and, and coming in and, and wanting to be a part of this, right? And so, um, we're really, really excited about the direction of the industry moving forward. Um, all right, so Steve, where do we go next? Any plans yet for the next state energy conference and where do we stay tuned to find out more? Well, uh, you can always stay tuned by looking at the center's website, uh, nccleantech.ncsu.edu. Uh, that is the place where we, we make those announcements. We also have a newsletter that you can sign up for uh, where you would see updates on the upcoming conferences as they come down the pike. Um, you know, that said, you know, I think next year, yeah, we will see uh, a return, we hope. Uh, and I mentioned it this morning, I, I want to mention it again, if you haven't gotten your vaccine, go get it. We want to do live events next year. Uh, you know, we expect to be able to do face-to-face -face, uh, back at the McKimmon Center, we hope, and, uh, you know, bring everybody together, ham biscuits and all. Um, you know, that said, I think we've learned a lot from doing this virtual event, and I would not at all be surprised if we see some continuation of the, you know, uh, virtual piece of the puzzle, at least, 
to help us, you know, dig deeper on certain topics where it makes sense. Uh, and so you may see, uh, we don't, I have no idea at this point, Shannon Helm will probably yell at me for even speculating, but, you know, it could be, you know, pre-conference events that are done virtually, or it could be some uh, sessions where we, we start live and then maybe continue on after the normal closing period on the web. Uh, who knows what, what it'll look like, but I would expect you'll see some virtual component to the conference. Um, we did hot topics this year for the first time, these little 30 minute topics, and it really evolved because inevitably when you're planning a conference this big, you start early. Uh, we'll be starting in earnest on content probably in August of, of this year for next year's next spring's conference. And so inevitably in you know February or March, something will come up uh, and we won't have a spot in the normal conference uh, agenda for it. And so these hot topic slots uh, were a way for us to start kind of addressing things that kind of emerged unexpectedly or that we wanted to kind of introduce this year so we could dig in deeper next year. And so I think you'll see that make a, a comeback in the format next year. And I guess format wise, the other big item is I, I guarantee you, you will see more about transportation integrated into this piece of the conference uh, as well. You know, with electric vehicle growth being what it is, it's, you know, really converging in a way that the transportation discussion, which only a few years ago was really a wholly separate conversation. We used to joke that people would uh, talk about oil prices and say that's why they needed to go solar when, you know, nobody puts um, transportation fuel into their rooftop. Uh, but, you know, now we're headed in a direction where, you know, transportation and the rest of the energy mix are much more integrated. And so it will be uh, important for us to figure out how to accommodate that in the conference. So I guess one last plug I would throw out there is that we are always looking for more help on the planning committee. And uh, if you're interested in, you know, helping to participate in developing our content next year, please do reach out to me or to Shannon Helm or even to Matt, because Matt knows where to find us. And, uh, you know, get involved. Uh, we, we always, you know, want to have a broad set of voices in helping to kind of pick the topics so that we make sure we're really covering what the folks in North Carolina need to know about uh, in energy. Awesome. Well, Steve, thank you again for all the work that you and your team have done in putting this conference on. And thank you for bringing in NCSEA as a partner and for asking me to come in and do a live version of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I had a ton of fun. Uh, so, Steve, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It's great to see you, Matt. All right. And here we go. And episode 48 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. Before you go, I wanted to give you a heads up that next year, save the date for the State Energy Conference, April 26th and 27th. 2022. And if you have not yet subscribed to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Listen in on April 29th for this episode, which we will release to everyone that has subscribed to the podcast. All right, that's it. See y'all later.